Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Uh, Jim, how are you? Well, I'm all right, thank you. Um, uh, God, I was blowing a gale last night, though. I mean, uh, windows rattling and... Yeah, well, I was on I was on the Royal Engineers Historical Society. Oh, yes, you were. Chat. Yeah, how was that? About Suez with, uh, with the Colonel, with his recollections yeah. of Operation Musketeer. Fascinating stuff. And his yeah. was all the breakdown of what the uh, Corps of Engineers were up to, what their, right. what their tasks were. Absolutely fascinating. So the British basically handled the right flank, so the, um, the western end of things, and the French handled the, um, the left flank, so the eastern end of things. And you put a parachute battalion on the British put a parachute battalion on the on an airfield on their far right flank and the French do a parachute landing on their outer left flank so it's like the old landings where you put parachutists on your flanks to cover your uh, sides and yeah. obviously there's an airfield to capture and then there's and then there's two bridges off the isthmus and the French with um, some men from 9 squadron RE land on this tiny tiny drop zone to seize these two bridges and also the sweet water pumping station because huh. there's a there's a sweet water canal yes to the city to to the town of port side and you've got to make sure you have control of the water supply of course um, if if the thing's going to proceed at all and also there's a sewage works and there's a compressed air plant that powers the sewage works and obviously you need to capture that and make sure that's not been too badly damaged and the fleet air arms smash up the compressed air site so then, then the sappers have to go in and fix it because otherwise the sewage works is basically going to go off and blow up. Right? Did it all work? It all worked. It all went off according to plan, but mainly because the Israelis were were um, invading through Sinai and you know doing this great sort of dash across the desert, and the Egyptians were, were like trying to put that fire out rather than right rather than the landing. So why did Suez fail then? What happened in Suez? Oh, politics. It's politics. It's the. There's nothing to do with military. No, not really. No, you've got Hungary at the same time, and Eisenhower's getting re-elected, and basically decides to not back the pound and cause the British to back out, British officials to back out. However, they, they get to this point, and, and I think six centurions come ashore and all this sort of stuff. And he told the story of the landing where they're on this great big LCT, and it's a double-decker. It's full of ammunition. There's the, the um, uh, parachute artillery guys, light, light regiment people, with, with 25 pounders. They've got, the guns have got that big by that point. And basically... Dad's crew are on the team are on the front of the LCT, and one of his one of his um, NCOs says to him, "I've done an exercise, sir, and um, doing a landing. And you, what you need is a vehicle with a winch at the front in case there's a problem." And so he goes, "All right, that's what we're doing," because he's he's allowed to make that decision. And they get there. There's this enormous ridge of gravel. So the first vehicle out is his three tonner, which is full of plastic explosive. But it's got a winch, and he starts winching the gun, the, the guns out because there's no other way anyone would have got off the. He said, "Had we not done that, we'd have probably got shovels out and had to dig through the. Gra- you know, everyone would have to dig through the gravel, and that would have really slowed us down." Blimey! 
And the reason the other guy's done it is because he's been there in a war, is it? Oh, no, I think he just done an exercise. This, he, said oh, that, right. he said what's interesting is, is how few people there were really kicking around um, who'd done it before. And, oh. you know, there's some naval people who had, but basically... It's not- only 10 years from, from D-Day, isn't it? I know, but that's quite interesting. There are people, people with some experience, but no, you know, D-Day's planned for a year. You know, they're, they're under the hood for D-Day yeah, f- yeah. for a year, essentially. Whereas this is like basically put together in October to go in November, go in the first week in November. So the, there's the rush and the, the dash, and they haven't got a cop team going and sampling the sand and all that sort of stuff. All that sort of stuff. To I mean, I don't out- really know anything about Suez. I'm ashamed to say. Yeah. I just don't, it's a, it's not, you know, I don't really know much about the Korean War either. Musketeer is pretty I, I, interesting. I don't go beyond 45. But they, well, no, of course not. Nor do I normally. But you know, I was sort of kind of gun to no, my head. You got, you got, you know, interested party. <laughs> but but basically, but they were they, there was talk of then doing this sort of armored breakout and all this sort of stuff and swinging round and but they didn't have the you know they didn't have the tanks right. they didn't have the people they didn't have the kit. Because right. some of the army came from Libya, some of it came directly from Germany via Cyprus. Right. Um, the French are coming from Algiers, you know. He said when they got back to Famagusta, someone had put in a concrete hard so they could get stuff off the ship more easily. The, but the, it was that, Just that quickly. That, yeah, but also it was that improvised. It's that there wasn't the infrastructure for it, you know. And, of course, the key thing, and this is a thing that, uh, point that Stephen Fisher makes, is for D-Day, you know, they're putting in those, those chocolate bar concrete hards for two years before the invasion of uh, Normandy, that the infrastructure for D-Days is a long burn project that's going on. Whereas this is like Eden decides basically in, you know, August, September, that that's what he's going to do. They, they do the deal with the French yeah. and the Israelis, where they, because the big idea is the Israelis invade the Sinai Desert and sweep yep. round to Sharm el-Sheikh and do a parachute landing and all this sort of stuff. And then the idea is they're heading for the Suez Canal, so the British and the French intervene at the Suez Canal in order to prevent the Israelis from taking the Suez Canal. That's the pretext. But the British and the French have agreed on this with the Israelis. There's this secret deal that's sort of, And they do it in their stately home belonging to the bloke who assassinated Dalam, his family. So it's all it's all resistance people who are used to doing, you know, all the secret service, French secret service people are all basically all people who've been doing dodgy deals and handshakes in chateaus and all this sort of stuff. So it's all the British afterwards go, oh, it was awfully. The, the skullduggery was ghastly. And you sort of think, oh, bugger off. You know, you, you're, yeah, you're doing plenty, yeah, yeah. plenty of that yourselves 10 years earlier, 11, 12 years earlier. But it's just it was it was fascinating. But the stuff that the, they had EOD to do. An awful lot of EOD to do because getting rid of, you know, uh, unexploded ordnance. So uh, right. uh, so basically lots of that to do because a lot of the ordnance was Second World War and was past its sell-by date. So there were a lot of rockets that had been fired at Portside that basically hadn't gone off. What does EODs have? Like? Explosive ordnance demolitions or something? Something like that, yeah. Yes, yeah, that I think, yeah. Yes, it is, yeah. They, so they had to do that, get rid of, you know, like they'd been... The Fleet Air Arm in particular, he said, had done a really great job, but a lot of their bombs hadn't gone off. Right. You know, because they're all old and past the sell by date. So they had yep. to do a lot of mine clearance, and there was a new Soviet mine that, that was brought to their attention. And then securing, securing the water supply. And there was a railway detachment with the sappers as well who were there to, you know, the, the, what's interesting about the sappers function, strikes me as it's so interesting about the sappers function, is it is integrally operational level. That. Their job Got is it. to make sure make sure that the, the operational side of things just flows so you can get on with 
them being tactical. You know, I thought it was really interesting. But he said, you know, all these weird incidents. So his lot, they set up in this American compound and the American consul turns up the next day and says, this is American territory. You have to get out of here. We don't want you in here. So they moved, yeah, they moved yeah. to the Italian one and the Italians are like, hey, no problem. You know, come on in. <laughs> But it's fascinating. Uh, but but we had also we had engineers on from all over the world. One of them, a uh, retired major general, wants to talk about command. So I think maybe we get him on to to discuss because he's written about mission command and all that. It'd be really interesting to get him on to t- yeah, talk well, about let's do it. modern perspectives. Um, yeah, anyway, absolutely. I, there's a digression. No, it's a very it's a very good digression because. You know, I'm immersed in, in diaries and things. And so I've been looking at another diary, which is this extraordinary diary by, by this German doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is the core doctor. He's the head of the 14th Panzer Corps doctor. And his diary goes away all the way through the entire war, including Stalingrad. Oh, so he got So out. he's with Huber and everyone when they get pulled out of, uh, right, out wow. of the Stalingrad pocket. Wow. It's, it's just amazing. But then he's back in, you know, he's in Italy in, in the kind of, you know, with 14 Panzer Corps. Yeah. At the time where Hermann Balk is temporarily in charge. Yeah. So at the time of Salerno invasions, Hermann Balk, our old friend Hermann Balk, who's yeah. one of the one of the great unknown field marshals of the war mm. later on. Then Huber comes back. Yeah. Then Huber gets posted back to the Eastern Front. Yeah. Oh, obviously von Sanger takes over. Yeah. Friedelin von Sanger und Esselin. Um <laughs> in, in November, I think it is, nineteen forty three. But his diary's really good. But but again, it's making me it's making we can maybe have a little look at uh, just a couple of the passages because they're yeah, yeah. absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. Um, but it's also made me think more and more and more about oral testimonies. Right. Which then leads on to the kind of Twitter storm yesterday about, <laughs> about yeah. Sherman's. All you have to do is to send a tweet just going, Sherman. Yeah. And it, and it, you don't have off. to say anything else. You don't have to no. say, what's the best, what's the worst. You don't have to say armor. You just have to mention one word and it just yeah. goes, Pow! yeah. Off it goes. But the value of looking stuff. At the moment, I, I just every day I'm just reminded about why that gives you so many different perspectives. Yeah, because yeah. you're all getting it as it's unfolding. Yeah, and this is this amazing bit on the 9th of October, and he because he's at headquarters and because you know the health of the troops and stuff is obviously incredibly important. Yeah, he's there at those kind of little daily or every other day core headquarters morning yeah. prayers. Yeah. They're all kind of discussing what's what, what's going on, who needs to get at the front and all the rest of it. And on the 9th, he goes, many details were discussed, as, of course, was the very important question of conduct towards the Italian civil population. Ah. Because of the necessities of war, we have to take the stand that regarding territory left to the enemy, there should remain no food, no livestock, no yeah. serviceable accommodation possibilities left available, and so have to act correspondingly. Yeah. The worries about feeding the population must be pushed onto the English always calls the Allies English, who are boldly declaring in their leaflets that they wish to take care of the Italians. They may now live up to those promises. The sacrifices being imposed on the population of this area alone is brutal and hard. They will suffer especially for the blame that the entire population has taken upon themselves. (laughs) But there you've got it in black and white, the whole... Scorched Earth policy. Yeah, yeah. And it's why every time they go, there's just endless demolitions and all the cattle are being herded up. Yeah. You know, I thought it was kind of, I thought it was a bit piecemeal, but it's absolutely systematic. It's systematic and it's ordered and it's the plan, isn't it? But, you know, the, the, the way that points into the Nazi mindset, though, isn't it, is, is you know, we're not going to get hung up on, you know, if the Allies want to 
be merciful or kind. That's their business, isn't it? It's, it's what that essentially says. If the Allies, the Allies want to feed people, well, more fool them, you know. Yeah. The whole thing is, is and it's, again, it goes back to that, that diary we're looking at of, of Jörg Zellner. Yeah. It's this, it's this absolute built-in German principle that it's dog-eat-dog, that, 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 you know, it is it's awful for other people. It's awful for Russians. It's awful for, for Italians. But this is all about the super race. And, you know, he does this whole talk. They have this him and Huber and the, they're staying up late at night and all the scene and, and Von Bonin, who's the chief of staff. And they're talking about it. And, you know, he's saying, you know, Huber's such a good man. You know, he's Christian. We all talked about religion and what religion means. And what we've all absolutely realised and accepted is definitely the case is that the white man has to be on top. Yes, we have a mutually ethical opinion, the belief in a higher being, the feeling of being part of a bigger force which directs us and to which we must, be worthy. But basically what he means is the preservation of the German race. That's the in the end the higher power, which is which is like you say, to see it in black and white in a diary, you know, he's not he's not performing that opinion for anyone. And he's not doing it performatively for his superiors. He's not, you know, he's this is this is them chewing the cud. This is saying what they the way that, you know, Lawrence Franklin Vale, and I've started re- recording those letters, the way that him and his mates sit around and talk about um, you know, socialism for the future. And, you know, have you read the New Statesman? It says this. Or Tribune, it says that. It, exactly yeah. the same way. It's exactly the same. But this is what he's informed by. I think to actually read that, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, to actually read, well, we're going scorched earth on this place. Totally. Because if they want to slow themselves down by feeding the locals, well, they're more full them. That's, I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, and so here it is. On the 17th of October, he says, so this is Huber's view. General Huber's thoughts are clear. One could almost say militarily structured. He kind of sees it as follows. Throughout all natural events, there is a red thread from the start, which leads up to and from the single-celled organism, finally ending with humans. It is our task to continue with this development and develop it further and higher. In doing this, the white race by spirit, ethic and body absolutely must remain on top. It's just... There it is right there. There it is. Yeah. And then he says, 12th of October, General Huber told a most pleasant event for 15th Panzer Grenadier Division today about two very young soldiers of the 18 years of age. After they'd repelled an English attack a few days ago, they put on their swimming trunks and swam across the Volturno, armed only with a few hand grenades, with the intention of looking for some English cigarettes. In doing so, they captured two very large and strong English soldiers who had pretended to be dead and who also brought them and then brought them across the Volturno. Both were immediately awarded the Iron Cross Second Class, an actual gutsy boyish prank. Unbelievable. <laughs> Isn't it? But... <laughs> But the bit I thought, that the bit that just absolutely stopped me in my tracks mm. yesterday was, if you can bear with me, it's Saturday the 16th of October. Yeah. And they're in, the, they're in the core field headquarters, the tactical headquarters, in a kind of chestnut wood clearing, basically in the Mignano Gap. So this is about eight miles south of Casino. And what you've got, you've got the massive mountain of Monte Camino on the right, on the western right-hand side, if you're looking southwards from the German position. Yeah. You've got Monte Samucro, which is San Pietro and all the rest of it. Then you've got Monte Rotunda, which is this little round, smaller one. And then you've got Monte Lungo, which is this sort of roughly north-south um, yeah. in the middle of the Mignano Gap. And they're kind of in that neck of the woods. And he writes, 
It's a peculiar feeling. Here one stands in front of his tent, looks to the north and west across the landscape. It lies peacefully there. On steep mountain slopes, terrace-shaped fruit gardens emerge, the fruits glowing red or yellow in full glory, or as windfalls surround the trees in a colourful crest. In between are the silver-grey olive trees with their knobbly trunks. Chestnut trees and oaks mix with the fruit trees a little further and form a dense fleece which shines in the different tones of green. In between are small villages looking out from the bushes, red and brown dominate here, maybe once and shining white towers out from the old stone church, apparently building blocks joined for eternity. Often the sound of a bell can be softly heard. I mean, very nice. Yes, I mean, I, be- be- beautiful, beautiful. And how much is the self catering villa? <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, good. Quite exactly. I mean, but, but it's a very vivid picture. You can actually see all of that, can't you? Absolutely, and I, and I wouldn't mind ten days there. You know, I mean, no, it's quite. Sounds, sounds yeah, you mean the same. <laughs> a deep ravine is next. After the last rain, the meadows are a shiny green again. Behind them, however, rugged bare slopes rise. Fissured rock abruptly breaks off. Sharp ribs and deep ravines can be seen. On top of the mountain stands a little chapel made from the stone of the mountain itself, and is therefore part of it. More mountaintops shimmer in the background, a blue-violet crest of romantic beauty. Thinking, ah, that's a fantastically vivid... Yeah. (laughs) Okay, but... Yeah, yeah. And yet, (laughs) (laughs) one knows that hard warfare will be waged in this area within a few days. It will eat itself into these slopes and mountains and move through the valleys with noise and destruction, turning the peaceful villages into ruins. It will be especially heavy here in the high mountains because we're going to oppose the enemy here. We want to stop them in their advance forwards. Here we want to dig into the ground and allow the enemy to assault, causing them death and destruction within their ranks. Perhaps enemy batteries will be positioned where I'm sitting at the moment, and observers will make nests to look over to the mountains, which will then also oppose them in hostility down to the valley, which will be the boundary between two hostile lines. But German batteries will search for this lovely position with their fire, tearing open the ground with their shells, splintering the trees and destroying the houses. War is horrific, endlessly horrific, destroying everything that has been created, and yet at the same time is a reflection of nature which created death and becoming. Because one day the guns here will be silent again as well, and new life will again flourish here. Old ruins will be overgrown, and the scars will heal in order to rebuild lavishly again. Although much life of any kind might have been destroyed, new life will come into its place, as it always was and forever will be. Blimey. Yeah. I was reading this and I was just thinking, oh my God. I mean, what a diary entry. Yeah, yeah, And then yeah, obviously yeah. his sort of musings on how this is just a transitory moment in time and life will, you know, nature will, will revive and all the yeah. rest of it. <laughs> Try telling that to the Italians of San Pietro. Well, yeah, exactly. (sighs) Exactly. Exactly. It's all very well you being philosophical, mate. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Totally. It's it's sort of only, I suppose, reaffirmed a kind of, a slight sort of sea change I'm having about the nature of eyewitness accounts on the Second yeah. World War, because yesterday yeah. on Twitter, one of the arguments uh, yes. about the Shermans well, was... Because, well, let's, let's, let's just explain this. Last week, we looked at um, operational research uh, report from 21st Army Group, wasn't it? From this number two operational research detachment or whatever they were called. Yeah. And it was, it was about Sherman uh, damage, hit rates, penetration, 
the 88 or the 75? Can you up armor a Sherman? Is it possible? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and the report concludes, actually, what we need to do is make the German tanks more vulnerable because we can't make ours less vulnerable. So we need to up gun. That's the thing. We, that's the thing we need to do, folks. And anyway, we're doing that. We're doing that as it is. Blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's like uh, saying Beetlejuice three times. You said the word Sherman and you summoned from the, from the pits of the internet um, uh, Sherman opinions. And we're going to take a break. And and then we'll be back to talk. And then about we're going to dissect Sherman opinions. The, the, the consequence of a terrible rookie error we made in mentioning the Sherman tank on Twitter. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with me, Elmer, <laughs> James Holland. Uh, so, uh, as we were saying before those advertisements, um, we mentioned we mentioned this damage report, and and the interesting thing, of course, about the damage report is it didn't talk about crew casualties. It was a technical report for technicians to answer technical questions, but also I think with a slight political flavour, given what was going on at the time, discussions about tanks. But go on, Jim, you wanted to get something off your chest as a result. Well, no. So the interesting thing is, is, is uh, one chap said, well, I happen to know for a fact that the Sherman is, is I'm paraphrasing. He might not have said exactly these words, but this is the gist of it. He's just saying, I know that the Sherman was rubbish because I sat down with David Render um, and I interviewed him at great length. Um, and I'm going to show you a track, you know, and I'm, and here's an extract of the transcription of what he said. And he said, Sherman was absolutely rubbish compared to a Tiger or a Panther. You know, we were under-armoured and we didn't have a big enough gun, particularly, you know, a, a, an 88 millimetre could slice through a Sherman armour at 3,000 feet per second. 
and it got me fit. You know, I, I knew David very well. I interviewed him maybe three or four times. I considered him a friend. You know, he was obviously a Sherman Ranger, which is one of the reasons why I knew him. And he was in A Squadron, so he was under John Semkin. And he was a bit green around the gills when he first got out there. I think he joined the, the regiment on the 13th of June, 1944. And what is really interesting, what I discovered doing all the research for, for, for Brothers in Arms, the Sherwood Rangers book, was that David changed his story a bit. So he's, he was a lovely, lovely bloke. He had very forthright opinions, but he was an absolute philanthropist. He could loads for charity. He was a motor racing driver. He was, you know, he's a man of many parts, um, incredible energy, very successful businessman in the building trade. You know, he's just a top bloke. He, he really was a top bloke. And he, but he wasn't shy of sort of saying what he thought. And the thing is, in the book he did with Stuart Tootle, Toots, he constantly went on about this guy called Jackson, Sergeant Jackson, who he changed the name of because he slagged him off so much. And he was his troop sergeant when he got out there. And Jackson was kind of, you know, in his early 40s, had a family, been through the desert, and frankly didn't want to be kind of killed on the back of a 19-year-old greenhorn um, troop commander who'd just arrived in, in Normandy. It's completely understandable. And he basically accuses Jackson of losing his nerve and, and not supporting him enough and, and being kind of, you know, action shy. But in a letter in 1982, David wrote, oh, good old Jackson. You know, he was such a good bloke, <laughs> this kind of stuff. So he's changed his tune. And, of course, the point is, is that, as we all know, it's not might not be deliberate at all, but, but memory plays tricks. You know, and, and memories change, and and, and well, then and all, as you ch- and as you change, your attitude to your memories change, and uh, your recollections of and your, as your priorities change, and all that sort of thing. So, so David was was part of that incredible battle on the twenty sixth of of June, nineteen forty four, for the Rouray Ridge, where fifteen seventy five millimeter ordinary Shermans and four yeah. Fireflies managed to destroy thirteen German tanks for no loss of their own, including yeah. five Tiger tanks. And, you know, that's the day that um, a killer managed to um, um, destroy two Tigers, one Panther, two Panzer fours. And one of the Tigers was hit and knocked out at 1,400 yards by that tank crew. So, you know, the idea that, that a Sherman can't knock out a, a, a Tiger is just nonsense. Hmm. Now, David had an incredibly traumatic experience on the 25th of September 1944, by which time they were in the Nijmegen section. Yeah. So it was just at the end of Market Garden. And they were pushing around to the north side of the Gross Big Heights, just sort of south of the river over which the bridge over Nijmegen goes. Yeah. And, and he was um, – so the 82nd Airborne, troops of the 82nd Airborne, have set up a roadblock just around a corner. And the road curves around a corner towards a village called Lute, L-E-U-T-H, which is right on the Dutch – German border. Yeah. And David got out and said to the, the American troops, come on, you know, you need to pull your finger out and we need to go and, go, go and push on. And they went, absolutely no way, Jose. We know we're dug in here and we're not going around that corner. David was the lead tank, went around, and this is polder country, so it's completely flat yeah. and yeah. the roads are on a kind of raised bank. Yep. And he went around this corner and no sooner as he'd gone around the corner than there was an 88 millimeter pack gun, anti tank mm. gun, and it fired straight at him. But they obviously were using HE, not armour piercing, so it didn't penetrate. Right. But obviously it caused absolute pandemonium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, reverse, reverse, reverse. And as they reversed, they slewed off the road onto the bank and they were stuck. And they couldn't, you know, desperately trying to get off and they're just literally all waiting for the death knell. 
you know, this is this is it. The shell's going to come. But it doesn't come. And the reason it doesn't come is because um, his friend Harry Heenan is in a different troop coming on a different approach to the north and come through the other side. And there was a wood with some sort of thin copse with water and sort of marshy. And he was on the other side, came off the road and through onto the polders itself and knocked out the 88 millimeter without being seen just in the nick of time. But obviously, if you're David Render and you're 19, and you've just been a nanosecond away from from death up against an 88 millimeter, albeit one that was on a on the ground was a was a field piece rather than a than a tank. That's going to leave quite serious impressions. And it's also clear that by the end of the war, he's he's combat fatigued. You know, he's he's losing it. He's he's losing his edge because he's just been in it too long. And he gets through unscathed. It's absolutely amazing. So, so that's the background to David David Render's experiences. But but. The point I would make is that David might remember it so, and that memory is completely valid, but it doesn't mean to say he's right. One person, one veteran's opinion of the Sherman tank doesn't mean that it's the correct opinion on the Sherman tank, because there's plenty of other people in the Sherwood Rangers who are in exactly, even in the same squadron as David who would disagree with his assessment of it. Yeah. And after all, a lot of the discussion descends into, you know, a tank is whatever it is, is part of an integrated system. And then, and that, that system, in, you know, also includes the training that the people who are using it have had, their experience that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, uh, to just look at, well, the armor's this thick, it can do this and that, is to see it in one dimension. You need to regard it in the three dimensions of, of how it's integrated into the systems around it, what, what it's being used to do. And also, you've got to bear in mind that tank-on-tank encounters, and particularly for the Americans in Northwest Europe, they happen later, the tank-on-tank encounters. You know, not, the bit where people are really critical of the Sherman, part of the war where people are really crit- critical of the Sherman, is Overlord, is the Normandy battle. And the, the Americans aren't doing anything like the tank-on-tank stuff that the British and the Canadians and the Poles are having to do, because after all, that's the plan. Yeah. Um, that you you've drawn the armor to the left flank where the British and the Canadians are because that's what you've decided to do, you know. And also, there's, there's the question of of what you're going to do with the tanks you've produced to fit within the doctrine that you've created. And the doctrine speaks of infantry tanks and cruiser tanks, but the British can't produce their cruiser tank quickly enough, and you need the infantry tank chassis for your for your avries and your assault tanks and all the stuff that 79th Armoured need. And crocodiles and stuff, which means that therefore Sherman's effectively, which were essentially cruiser tanks, are needing to be used in an infantry tank role, which then jumbles up your interface between the equipment and the doctrines. The doctrine's written with certain equipment in mind. Already, I'm miles away from the idea that the Sherman is a Tommy cooker, just just by talking about it like that. You know. Well, yeah, well, one of the arguments, and it's the same old argument that gets sort of reeled out all the time. You know, the only reason the Germans lost is they didn't have enough. It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, and, and one of the arguments yesterday was was you know, logic says that you, you know you're you're saying that just because there were more Shermans, um, that makes the Sherman a better tank. It's like, well, yeah, but yeah. why are there more Shermans? Because yeah. the, the intrinsic design is easy to mass produce. Yeah, you know, I think there was something like hundred. I think there were one hundred and thirty six Tiger tanks in Normandy. Full stop. And there were thousands of Shermans. Well, but let's say, Jim, the idea is you bring your advantages to bear. Right in an industrial war, the American advantage is that they can mass produce. The German advantage, let's say, is that they can produce these absolutely extraordinary 
tanks of the next decade, right? Let's just, for the sake of argument, say that's what they are. Because after all, when the main battle tank appears at the end of the Second World War, in the form of the you know the Centurion, and then what comes after, you know, the Leopard and all the stuff that comes after that, they're not like the German super tanks of the Second World War. The main thing with the Centurion and the main thing that, that then follows in post-war tank design is getting the profile down, getting as low as you, the tank as low as you possibly can so that it's, you can't acquire it as a target more easily. Because the Panther, for all its exci- the all excitement about Panther is it's a tall tank. Yeah, it's the same, it's basically the same height as the Sherman, I think. Well, and that's one of the Sherman's problems. One of the things held against the Sherman is it's a tall tank. But let's say the German advantage here is that they can design these super tanks of the future. Nevertheless, they fail to bring that advantage to bear because they might be able to design and produce these things, but not in numbers that, that, that will be decisive. That will be decisive. And that's, you know, and dis- war is decision. War is being decisive. And they're unable, they're unable <laughs> to bring this, this <laughs> yeah. supposed advantage to bear to be, to be decisive. And, and, and so in, in that sense, they aren't better tanks. And then you've got to push into the fact that the Germans don't have mass production. They've got mass artisan production, like the British do, that they haven't actually acquired mass production uh, techniques the way the Americans have perfected in the uh, post-First World War era. They've not done it. So every tiger is slightly different because they're made in workshops by yeah, artisans course. in a mass production style, but they're not, they are not mass produced. No. And so that then leads to that slow, A slows you down and B means that the finished product, everyone's ever so slightly different. Like Spitfires, you know, this is a thing that the British and the Germans have in common in, in the way they manufacture is everything, everything is produced in this workshop style rather than actually like the Americans where every Sherman out of that plant will be identical to every other Sherman out of that plant. And if you're bringing your advantages to bear and the German, the German advantages you can create these super tanks, you're not bringing it to bear in a way that's decisive. So you could, uh, you know, but what they also can't do is produce enough Mark IVs in a mass production style, because they can't mass produce in the way that the Americans can. Because if the Mark IV yeah. is the Sherman equivalent, you know, and after all, when you uttered the magic word Sherman on the internet, you know, a lot of people popped up and said, well, you know, that tiger everyone saw was a Mark IV, because the profile's similar. That's true. Yeah. That is the case. And the Mark IV, the Mark IV with a bigger gun on it was a useful piece of kit. But let's not forget, tank on tank action is essentially rare. Well, yeah, I think it sort of accounts for about sort of seven percent of tank actions. But the other thing is, is, is yeah. you know, in the end, it all sort of boiled down to one person going, going. Well, if you've got a bigger, ta- a bigger gun and bigger armor, then clearly it's a better tank. And and you know, the only time that's re- you know, if you, if you put if you had a Tiger at fifteen hundred yards and you had a Sherman at fifteen hundred yards and they were both pointing directly at each other and you both said fire at the same time, the Tiger would yeah. win probably. Yeah. But of course, that's almost never going to happen. I mean, it is you know because. If if a Sherman manages to kind of get get a, a seventy five millimeter round in the tracks or the tracks or up the arse or or gets it so that the turret can't move, which is of course what happened to the Tiger in in North Africa and Tunisia, that's now at the Tank Museum, yeah, yeah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You haven't got to destroy the tank; you've got to disable it. You've got to stop it and make the crew get out. And and the key thing is is actually, and this is a point that Woody made last night, Woody Woodage on on Twitter. He who hits first generally wins. And that is absolutely true. And if you want a tank that's going to be most likely to hit first, a Sherman's probably got the advantage because it can because it can manoeuvre quicker. It can reverse and go forward and kind of sidle and snickle out of the way. And it can definitely, definitely fire quicker. But this is it. You look at look at the conclusions drawn, which is that you know, the, the tanks that emerge allied tanks that emerge at the end of the Second World War. 
They do all have a big gun, but they aren't heavily armoured and they're quick because firepower is important, but manoeuvre is more important than what appears to be protection in the form of thick armour because manoeuvre is protection. Maneuver is your protection. Absolutely. And that was that was made patently clear to me when I had that day driving around in the Cromwell. It was so fast. The reversing speed was off the radar. I mean, it was just incredible, the maneuverability. And you suddenly realise what an enormous advantage that is. Whereas the Tiger and Panthers are, you know, for all their fearsomeness, are incredibly cumbersome to kind of manoeuvre around. Yeah, yeah. They just are. But then also, most... If you're talking armoured fighting in support of infantry, you're going at walking pace anyway. So it's about manoeuvre when you've been acquired or manoeuvre to a, as a target or manoeuvre to prevent your acquirement as a target. Yes, you just want to be able to manoeuvre very, very quickly. As soon as a shell whistles past you, you need to be able to just go vroom and bang it reverse, get out, and we'll move forward or whatever. Yeah. But you just need to move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and there's, you know, there's no question that the Sherman trumps the panther and the tiger on that. Yeah. You know, so it depends well, on what, on what you're, it, it, it depends on what you're judging it. And I suppose my point about the Sherman tank is it's just in the round. You know, numbers do count, plus ease of maintenance, fact that it's so easy, plus the fact that you can get an engine in and out in two hours if you need to well, in the field. as well. And it's cheap. Yeah. So you've got more of them. And it turns into an SP really easily. It turns into a recovery tank really easily. It's a wide open chassis, essentially. But that's what they've decided they're going to make and they're going to make it. Yeah. You know, that they, they've they've identified what they think the problems are. I mean, I, it, is re- it is interesting this though, because there has been tigerphilia for a very long time and it's sort of turned into a, turned into a sort of um, sidebar to Second World War chat is the tiger is amazing. And then of course, there's been the pushback from people saying, well, actually the Sherman is amazing. But the minute you stop thinking about them as integrated pieces of kit in a three-dimensional system. And that three-dimensional system for the Allies includes the fact you're an expeditionary force. You've got to ship the bloody things across large stretches of, of ocean. They've got to fit in landing craft and landing ships and, and liberty ships and so on. Yeah, and the British are tied down by the idea of railways before their gauge of railway, before you know, before eventually they abandon that right at the end of the war and, and say, all right, we, that doesn't work for us anymore. You know, those considerations... Of course, they limit the design, but that limitation means that it's still accommodated by the Sherman design to, to, to get you upgunned to the larger gun variants by the end of the war that, that can deal with anything, that, you know, blah, 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 blah. But that's to take them out of their three-dimensional system. You know, after all, anti-tank fire, integrated anti-tank fire from artillery pieces you know, from the integrated artillery anti-tank is where most tanks are getting chewed up. You know, David Render's story about running into an 88, he's not running into a Tiger in that story where he, where they slither off the side of the no, dike. No, no, it's a, it's a Pac-40 or it, Pac-43. It's a pack, exactly, exactly. And then Panzerfausts become the thing, you know, that everyone's worried about. And yeah. of course the solution... They don't need to be 30 tons or 56 tons. They can just, they, you got to put them on your shoulder. And after all, the solution to Panzerfaust is integrated tank and infantry operation, which tells you that you're, you're part of a 3D system. They forget that on the day on the ground. That's the thing, is that that's the other thing that happens. And the other thing is there is no ideal tank. There's no such thing. It's no. impossible. They've all got flaws. They've all got problems. Yeah. They've all got disadvantages. Yeah, yeah. You, you know. But 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 to say the tiger is better than the Sherman is just is just is just ridiculous. It's not. It's like judging it on what. Yeah. I mean, how do you quantify these things? I mean, well, it's. I mean, it's, well, it's, there's well, lots of different ways of quantifying it. But 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 just to say it's better because it's got you you can't go down the route of saying one tank is better than another tank because it's got bigger armor than a bigger gun. I mean, if you want to go. My criteria for judging a tank is big armor and, bi- and big gun. Then fine, but but th- that's a that's a pointless criteria because it's so much more than that. 
That's the point. Do you know what? With this, though, we've just created another, like... I mean, the fact that we, we're picking this scab here, Jim, when, when, when it's I, just going to get I, worse online now. Do you know what I'm going to do <laughs> next week when I puff this episode? I'm just going to do one word. Sherman. Yeah. <laughs> Sherman. At We Have Ways, Make You Talk. <laughs> See what happens. A big picture of one. Going past a knocked out tiger, but I mean, what is it? 100, I think it was 136. I think I'm right on that. I may be wrong, but but it's around yeah. that number of, of of tiger tanks that went to were sent to um, Normandy, and I'm pretty certain not a single one got out. So it can't be that good. Yeah, but that you're up against an enormous integrated. Oh, yeah, yeah, but that's not fair because you know they yeah. have more than them. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it will come back again. Of course, it will. You know, of course it will. It's just, it's funny though. But it didn't. But it has really, really made me change my. I mean, obviously, there's lots of values of talking to to veterans. Of course, there is. There's no mm. question about mm. it. Yeah. I mean, for example, you know, when when I've interviewed, when I've interviewed veterans, no one has mentioned post. <laughs> you know, if you push them, if you say to them, you know, how important was post? Oh, really important. But they don't volunteer it. You know, in their memory, what they're remembering is. That that sticky MG post that was on the little crop out you know outcrop of rock or or they're remembering the but that's the, what I that's what I'd remember you know of course I mean, you it, would yeah, you, you, yeah. because because memory filters doesn't it and, now, and you know if you sort of really push them on food or something they'll tell you about McConaughey's and you know bully beef and stuff and and they might remember a funny incident where something amusing happened to one of their mates or you know whatever and they can remember little bits. But all too often, you know, they start start incorporating their own reading, post war reading into it. Yeah, I, and it's just inevitably you have to you have to talk to veterans, learn from them, but you have to you have to sort of qualify it. You have to kind of recognise that that it is just one person's view and it is distorted memories over sixty years or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, so it I has mean, to come you know, with that caveat. Which, which talk, talking with with the colonel last night. His version of events of what happened at Suez. I've got, you know, I quite, he apparently there were some Su one hundreds on the beach. He told us and um, and some T thirty fours. And one of the one, I think one of the Egyptian armored vehicles tried to engage a destroyer and was um, then uh, shelled to oblivion by you yeah, know four no, and a half inch guns. Um, uh, by the way, just before we wind up, I'm I'm on the side. I'm reading um, Douglas Porch's book, Defeat and Division: France at War, thirty nine to forty two. Oh, is it good? It's really good. Did you know that um, uh, Weygar was hysterical in June 1940 about the possibility of a fifth column uprising? He was worried about the French Communist Party seizing hmm. power in Paris. Did you know I this? I didn't know that. He was worried that Maurice Torres had seized power in Paris in June 1940, when in fact Torres was in Moscow, 1,500 miles away. And... Weygal played down the incident in, in, in his memoirs, but they diverted troops to Paris to prevent a... Um, they were worried about a sort of commune uprising, another commune uprising. That's just amazing, isn't it? It's isn't amazing. It's amazing how in the heat of these moments, your brains scramble. Well, but you're some, you know, it just makes you think, you, you know, in the event of an invasion of, of Britain, what kind of mad things might have been thrown up like that? Because Dalai... Petain, Hunsinger, Herring, Voirot, right, um, who's chief of the general staff, and Pretella, his commander, divert, oh. also diverted troops to Paris in fear of a, uh, uh, of a fifth column uprising in Paris. They didn't send troops to stop the Germans getting into Paris. They were worried about an uprising. I mean, that, Amazing. 
That's just fascinating. That makes you, you know, like I had no idea about that. And that really, you know, that, that, that really makes you sort of think what, what stranger, because we often we've talked about if, the, if Britain were invaded, the sort of straightforward, what would happen to the, but it's the political panic is yeah. perhaps a thing you can't, yeah. you, you can't factor for. Amazing. Not incredible. He's really good, Douglas Porch. Yeah, it's brilliant. This book it is really, really great. Gamble, was that him? Something yeah. like that. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's he's basically he's basically trying to sort of say France attempts to carry on. You know, it's not just a sort of occupied vassal state. The politics of France then bubbles on. There's this idea that you will continue in the empire, the French Empire, in exile. That fr- the spirit of France will go there, which is why you've then got. You know, de Gaulle's so keen on on getting involved in reconquering the Vichy Empire, the F- French Empire, because that's that's where sort of the French idea has gone while France is occupied. Yeah, yeah. And who controls the empire? Controls the revolution. I mean, it's it, or the post-revolutionary settlement. It's just it's absolutely fascinating. Well, and as Franco proved, if you've got colonial troops in your hand, that puts you in quite a strong position. Well, that also puts you in a, it puts you in a strong position, but it's just this, it's this sort of, uh, uh, and he's very good on he's very very good on pre-war politics, appeasement, rearmament. You know, when, as they start to rearm, they're worried about overheating the economy, and that becomes the thing they get, they get hung up on that rather than whether how the extent to which they should rearm and how efficiently. You know, they're still thinking conventionally in terms of economics. They're thinking, well, we don't want to create devaluation and inflation at the same time by rearming, and we don't want to line the pockets of the of the armaments people who did so well out of the Second World War, blah, blah, blah. And they get they get bogged down in that rather than we have a real problem next door. You know, it's really great. So that's Defeat and Division, France at War, 39-42. And it's a two-volume thing because he's obviously – it's obvi- you know, the, 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 the hinge moment is is – the full occupation, the end of Vichy France, and then what happens next. But it's really, really interesting. It's fascinating stuff. Well, it'd be good to get him on at some point, wouldn't it? He's, um, oh, I would. It'd be great. He, he's, he's amazingly eminent. I had absolutely no idea, though, that they'd sent, they'd sent troops in fear of a... No, I had no idea of that either. I mean, isn't that incredible? Amazing. There's actually a surprisingly thin amount of work on France because of because of de Gaulle's very sensible decision at post war yeah. to just sweep it all under the carpet. So right, we're just not we're not going to talk about it. And so they don't. That's basically what this book's saying is, you know, this it gets a France is sort of like switched off in nineteen forty with the collapse and turned back on in nineteen forty five. You know, uh, uh but what's actually going on and what's feeding into this and all this sort of stuff. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely amazing. It always makes me think of the, you know, the sorrow and the pity. You know, the fact that, yeah. you know, the, the, which was this sort of incredibly shocking film that came out in 1969. Yeah. Um, by Marcel Ophuls. Yeah. And it focused on on Clermont Ferrand, which is obviously the the, the main city of the Auvergne. Yeah. Um, and not a million miles from Vichy itself, the spa town where the government under Petain kind of retreated to, and. It showed people from both sides, and it showed this particularly this one guy who who had served with the SS, and he was sort of talking yeah. quite frankly about it. Um, the first DVD release of the film only came in November 2011. <laughs> and it was first shown on French television only in 1981, having been banned. It was banned when it first came out in 1969. Gosh. I mean, it'd be interesting to, to uh, you know, it must be there to watch with subtitles. Oh, God, but... I've seen it, and I've got the script as well. It's, it's, the film is it's stunning. 
And it has yeah. all these interviews with German troops and you see them kind of, you know, at a wedding and stuff and they're all laughing and all the rest of it. And then, you know, this is in 1968. Yeah. When they're filming it. And then, you know, cut away from the wedding and you say, so you see that you see the, these German interviewees in their kind of family context. Yeah. And sort of getting on with life in Western Germany. And then they interview them. It's got Anthony Eden in it. Sitting wow. from his recorded in his home just down the road in Alverdiston, down the road from me. Wow! Um, it, it's it's absolutely it, it's it's really really stunning. Brilliant. Maybe you should what, do a gurgle box of a sorrow and the pity. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, Christian de la Maziere. He's the guy. He's 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 an intellectual. He's a, he's a upper class intellectual, Parisian mm. intellectual, and he sits there with his kind of thick Michael Caine glasses and a kind of polo neck, smoking yeah. gitan, and he's talking about his time in the SS. It's, it's absolutely amazing, and he he wrote a book. I've 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 got his book. It's it's incredible. It's a really really fantastic film. I think you'd you'd particularly having read this book now, you yeah, yeah. really really enjoy it. Yeah. It's it, it, yeah. it's it's two one hour films. I think if I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We did dare shy away from the Sherman tank finally, um, which I think is, uh, you know, took took some doing. I think it took some guts to kind of actually talk about it openly in public. <laughs> Pull our necks on the line here. Ah, brilliant. Well, um, we'll see you all very soon. There's great stuff on Thursdays. Um, there's this diaries thing to come, I think. I think we're, we're yep. beginning to... Well, we're gearing up for that, aren't we? Slither into committing to that. I've started recording some of it. Um, uh, thanks for listening. Um, we will see you uh, next time. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.